You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, I'm Robert Wright. I run the Non-Zero Foundation, which produces The Glenn Show and all other shows on Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV. We host a variety of voices, some of them highly unorthodox, and we encourage dialogue that is sharp but civil. We think fostering constructive conversation is especially important now that America, and even the world, is looking kind of fragile. If you agree that our mission is important, I hope you'll consider helping us shoulder the cost. You can do that by becoming one of our cherished patrons at patreon.com slash nonzero foundation. That's N-O-N-Z-E-R-O-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. Thanks. We need your help, and we deeply appreciate it. Uh, hello, uh, Peter R.C. Diacano. You're back. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Uh, good to see you again. This is Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv, which is sponsored by the Watson Institute for Public and International Affairs at Brown University, where I'm a professor, professor of economics at Brown. I'm with Peter R.C. Diacano, who is a professor of economics at Duke. This is part two of uh, Peter's uh, appearance here on the Glenn Show, we recorded uh, just last week, it was posted a conversation about the affirmative action lawsuit that involves uh, Students for Fair Admissions, which uh, represents Asian students suing Harvard University for discrimination in admissions. Everybody has heard about this lawsuit. Peter uh, served as an expert uh, witness on behalf of the uh, Asian students in that lawsuit. Uh, which has now on appeal and his arguments are being heard in the appellate court, even as we speak about that lawsuit. We talked about that in the last uh, edition of the Glenn show that Peter uh, was a guest on, but we're back because, well, well, uh, let me see if I can uh, show everybody why we're back at some level. Okay. I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to try to share my screen so that you guys can see this political cartoon, which is now about five years old, but uh, it depicts some members of the United States Supreme Court hearing oral arguments in affirmative action case, the Fisher case out of the University of Texas, if I'm not mistaken. And Justice Scalia is shown there in Klansman's robes, as you can see. And Justice Sotomayor is commenting, I see Justice Scalia has a new robe, okay? He has a new robe, he's a Klansman. Now why? Why is this cartoon being, uh, Justice Thomas is shown asleep, asleep at the switch. Why is this cartoon appearing? Because the court is hearing arguments in an affirmative action case. And Justice Scalia has asked the attorneys representing the University of Texas, which is defending affirmative action, about whether or not African-American students might not be better off if they went to less demanding uh, institutions for higher education. Now, that's a controversial issue because he's basing his question on implications of something that's called the mismatch theory, which applies in affirmative action, namely that sometimes kids who benefit from affirmative action may be mismatched, may be put at a school where they don't prosper, but if they had been at a less academically demanding environment, they might have done better. This is the theory. Not saying it's right or wrong, just saying Scalia is asking about it. The fact that he asked leads a cartoonist to depict him as a Klansman. Uh, this is the environment that we live in, the political environment where the affirmative action issue is being debated. And Peter is right on the front lines in this environment 
uh, because he's a researcher whose uh, scholarly work touches on these questions and he tries to bring facts to bear in answering these questions and he sometimes catches a lot of flack for doing so. Now, I don't want to speak for him. I'm just introducing the conversation. Uh, I don't think he would portray himself as a martyr, but he does have some interesting things to say about how do you react to that cartoon and will you try to explain to people a little bit about uh, what the mismatch theory is all about and why it's important and what the evidence is and whatnot. Like, let's have a conversation about that. Yeah. And I think, I think you have to lead sort of with that we're on the same page and that I want, I want black students to succeed. I want them to succeed. And I'm interested in a, uh, that occurring. I'm, I think a lot of people perceive this stuff as, uh, it's all a front. You know, what you're really interested in doing is you're trying to hold black people down. And, you know, I reject that. Um, you know, I think we mentioned a little bit that, uh, you know, my faith is important to me. And, and that, that plays a role here, you know, that uh, I know I mess up all the time. And we're all in the same boat. Um, every person has dignity period. And, and I want that affirmed. And I think that that's, uh, you know, something I've been thinking, you know, quite a bit about is that uh, for a long time, that's not how um, blacks were treated. And so why should you believe me now? Um, but I want to lay that out there that uh, I'm interested in, in the success of all groups in so when, we're, when I'm talking about the mismatch hypothesis, I want to evaluate what works and what doesn't, what doesn't work. And um, we could just say, oh, uh, do the virtue uh, signaling game. Uh, or we could actually try to figure out um, what works. Let me, let me try to explain a little bit um, because everybody not, might not be following the debates about affirmative action is closely. So Peter, he's an economist at Duke. Uh, he's confessed to being a Christian believer and uh, to wanting the best uh, for everybody. But why is he saying things like that? Because some of his research has lent credence to the concern that Justice Scalia gave voice to when he asked the question that provoked that cartoon. Namely, some of his research has suggested that under some circumstances, and he can say more about this, it may be the case that the consequence of affirmative action is to lead to a distortion in the way that the students who benefit from affirmative action are allocated to differently ranked institutions of higher education. So there's a matching issue here. The kid has characteristics, the school has characteristics. A good fit is a situation where the characteristics of the kid in the school line up in such a way that the kid prospers at the school. If you put a kid who doesn't have a strong background into a highly demanding academic environment, he may fail or she. This didn't help the kid, okay? Now, whether that's true or not is an empirical question. It's not something that can be resolved a priori. Peter has been on the front lines and investigating that. Again, he can tell us about it. But sometimes he's found that the answer is the kid is not made better off by being put in the more demanding environment. When he finds that people have been uh, led to react, see there, you're against black people getting ahead in life. You're trying to kill affirmative action. You're, you know, you don't want social justice. And again, Peter can speak for himself, but I believe he just said, well, wait a minute. Social justice depends first on understanding the facts 
you can't do any kind of justice if you don't know what's actually true about the world. That's all he's trying to do. Did I do a good job defending you, Peter? Beautiful. And I think, you know, it's really why economics is a dismal science to some extent, right? That fundamentally it reigns on the parade of very good intention policies by showing, you know, what, what may actually happen. Um, and I hope that we continue to be the dismal science in that regard and not, uh, you know, not, not cave on uh, pursuing the truth. Do you know uh, John Tyrrell's book, Economics for the Common Good, published by Princeton University Press three or four years ago? I know of it, but I, I don't I haven't read it. I strongly commend it to your attention. Jean Tyrrell is a Nobel laureate uh, economist, uh, theory, economic theorist. Uh, he's in France now in Toulouse at the uh, School of Economics there, but for many years was a professor at MIT. He's a very profound thinker on the frontiers of uh, the theory of uh, contracts, incentives, uh, and organization, uh, and, and so forth in economics. This is Jean Tarot, but he has a book. And I'm just, I don't mean to take the time away from affirmative action, but I just want people to understand this point. His book is called Economics for the Common Good, and it's a wonderful uh, uh, excursion across a wide range of different policy areas where economics could be applied. But he starts with foundational issues, and one of the issues is why <laughs> do people hate economists? <laughs> you know, why are economists, uh, you know, called the practitioners of the dismal science? And his point is that often the answers, which are answers about the world, are unpleasant to receive, and economists are the people who deliver them. And so you're blaming the messenger. If I tell you that something costs a lot, and if you pursue it, you will have to give up something else, and you can't have everything that you want, and that's just the way it is, you're going to make me into the bad guy, okay? Yeah. So, so affirmative action is a policy. It's out there. It's got a lot of different aspects to it, and it has a lot of different con- consequences in different circumstances. And whether or not it's achieving the goals that it is set out to achieve is an empirical question to which the answer will sometimes be no. Right. Yeah, so why don't we talk about Yeah, go ahead. And I think it really depends on how the program is constructed. Uh, because typically, you know, you want your kids to go to a school that's a little bit better than where, where they're at. So if um, when we think about mismatch, there has to be nuance in that. Uh, if we just had an affirmative action program where the bump was small, I think there were, I don't think there'd be much of a scope for mismatch. Uh, it's when um, things might get much larger, then, then you have an issue. But even then, you know, my view on this is a lot of that could be resolved um, if information was provided to the student. Because you know, at the end of the day, as economists, we're sort of rational choice folks. You know, all that affirmative action does is it expands the number of schools that uh, you could potentially attend. So typically expanding uh, the choice set is always a good thing. Um, so to me, the bar for mismatch in a sort of a utility sense is actually incredibly high. Um, but universities could, could do a lot to resolve, uh, resolve the mismatch issue. Okay, we're going to come back and, and give people who don't follow it closely a greater uh, specificity about what we mean by mismatch and what the evidence says. But I want to underscore a couple of things. Small bump, less of a problem. This is so very important. Affirmative action is not either or not at all. It is 
quantitative as well as qualitative. How much you do actually matters. The marginal cost curve rises, and sometimes it rises very steeply. If you set a goal, say, with no affirmative action, the black student presence would be 4%, and you set a goal of 6%, that's one thing. 8%, that's something else. 12%, that's an entirely different world. So the size of the bump matters, and we should be thinking about the cost on the margin. I'm sorry to sound like an economist, but this really is the right way to think about it. You should be thinking about where you want to set the target and what it costs you to make that target a little bit more strenuous. And it may be that targets are set too high at many places and that much of the problem with affirmative action is a problem with trying to be too intense in the effort rather than doing the effort or not doing it at all. So that was one point that I wanted to make. The other point here, which is really absolutely critical for the mismatch question, is if kids know what the relative alternatives are, they'll sort themselves out so that the ones who would actually be badly hurt by the mismatch will avoid going there in the first place. If they know what they're getting themselves into, they'll make the decision. What am I saying? I'm saying you could go to Yale or Caltech. Caltech doesn't do much affirmative action. Or you could go to the University of Illinois or the, or the University of Indiana. And I'm saying there's nothing wrong with the University of Illinois, there's nothing wrong with the University of Indiana, but it may be that Yale and Caltech are more demanding for certain kinds of students. And it may be that when those students end up getting admitted under affirmative action, they drop out or don't complete the college career in the way that would be most satisfactory to them. But there could be other students who are Black and who could benefit from affirmative action, who know their own circumstances, and for whom the the quote-unquote mismatch wouldn't be a mismatch at all. As long as the kids know what they're getting themselves into, they can mitigate whatever the ill effects might have been from a mismatch thing. And I just want to underscore those two points because I think they're very important. But do you think Scalia was right to raise that question in the context of, of that lawsuit in uh, Texas? And, and uh, what's the answer to his question? Uh, or at least what kinds of answers would you be inclined to give based on your, on your research? Well, I think the biggest push I want to make for is transparency. Because then you can figure out what's a good match and what's not not a good match. Um, and to me, this is where, you know, I think these Supreme Court cases have actually worked to the detriment of transparency. So if you think about the, the twin Michigan cases, you basically said point systems are not allowed. We have to do things holistically. Well, holistically effectively gives you a huge incentive to hide hide what's going on. And, and so you'll hear this all the time, you know, race is just a factor of a factor. And same with legacies or athletes, it's always just a factor of a factor. But you never actually find out what that means because they, they don't release their data. Uh, so you don't really know. I mean, in principle, you ought to be able to find out how well you fit in um, with the school. But my, but my view on this is that universities ought to be much more transparent and say, okay, we've accepted you. You said you wanted to do engineering. If you come to this school, given your academic background, here's the probability you'll graduate in engineering in four years. Here's the probability you graduate in some other field in six years. And then the individual can make an informed decision about um, what they're doing. They don't want to do that because they'd be worried about the student not showing up, um, which would be a problem. Are you confident that you can estimate uh, 
tightly enough what the probability of a student's completing a program of study is based on their entry level characteristics such that they should make their decision based on that advice? What's the standard error around your estimate of that probability? Well, to give you an example, um, in one of our papers, we looked at uh, what was going on in the UC system. And if you were in the bottom quartile of applicants to the UC system. University of California. Yeah. And you went to Berkeley or UCLA, regardless of your, of your race, you said you want to major in the sciences. The probability you graduated in the sciences in four years was zero. <laughs> so bottom quartile, bottom quartile at the flagship uh, campuses. Not at the flagship campuses, though. This is among applicants. So typically, if you're a bottom quartile white student, you're not at Berkeley or UCLA. I see. But there is a set of minority students who are going to be in that group. There's a few white students who are, who are going to get in through, through some channel um, being in the bottom quartile. But yeah, the, the gradient is steep on this. Um, I think we talked last time about how at Duke for black males, they were switching out at a rate well over 50%, yeah. where for white males, it was 8%. And that is accounted for. By these differences. They put too much weight on STEM here. So what if they switch out? They switch out and they get a degree in sociology. Nothing wrong with that. It's still a degree from Duke or from the University of California, Berkeley. And there is nothing wrong with that as long as they let them know. So in my view, as long as the schools let them know, these are the probabilities. And so in my view, okay. the mismatch hypothesis disappears if students are informed with what, what the university knows about their success probabilities. Would, would totally disappear. Now, I think the other benefit of that is universities ought to be looking at their data to find out what they can do to help people persist. Yeah. You know, here we've got, it's amazing, Duke House is the North Carolina education data, which has all the data on high school, uh, secondary, elementary students' test scores. In the state of uh, North Carolina. Yeah, for all public schools. Wow. Uh, and so we're happy to analyze that data. And if you look at, you know, the data for um, doing that sort of analysis, it's actually a lot more available than it is for colleges. Because colleges are nervous. You know, they want to make sure that um, they're not going to get sued or not going to look bad uh, to the detriment, you know, of the students. I think we could identify very quickly because the other response says you could just give the information. But the other thing is, is you could say, look, this person wants to do engineering. We need to help them get ready for that rather than saying, ah, he'll be fine. And, and when he switches to sociology, we know he's going to switch, but he'll be fine without letting, letting the student know. Okay. So you're a nice guy and you're not going to say this. Let me say it. There's a certain amount of fraudulence going on here. Uh, in which both the public and the consumers, in this case, the public are the voter who might vote against or for affirmative action or whatever, and the consumers are the kids who are going to college, are being baited and switched. I mean, they're being, uh, they're, they're being defrauded. Um, the university is interested in its brand, uh, which is enhanced by its advocacy and its demonstration of diversity. They're less concerned about the consequences of what they do either 
for the long-term well-being of the kids or for a kind of honest conversation with society about what's going on. Uh, to it, I give an example. Amy Wax, professor of law at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, said on my podcast a couple of years ago that the Black students in her first-year law class weren't doing that well, that they tended to lag behind, and she thought it was because of affirmative action. She was excoriated for saying so, but never did anybody tell me what the actual scores of the Black kids were in the class or how much affirmative action was being used in the admissions process. They just blew smoke. They just said, no, nothing to see here. She's a racist. They just blew smoke. How much affirmative action is actually going on? You said that the holistic, this was the Gruder and Gratz cases, the one where Sandra Day O'Connor said, we hope in 25 years we won't have to be doing this. University of Michigan, I don't know, 2003, something like that, landmark affirmative action cases. And they said, no, you can't just give points to uh, the kid because they're black, but you can have a holistic. You can just kind of, you know, don't have a separate thing where if you're black, you get in with this or that, but you have a holistic, you have holistic. That's a, as you say, an invitation to, well, to what the uh, uh, personal appeal score, what do you call it? personality index or whatever it is? At, at personal rating. Yeah. That is to say, it's an invitation to blow smoke. It, it's an invitation to obfuscate, to, to, to uh, sow confusion, to introduce essentially irrelevant factors into this decision-making process, which you can then manipulate to produce the outcome that you want. Uh, so there's a kind of fraudulence here, and you could push this, you could push this point further if you wanted to. There's a kind of lie that's built into the whole process. But like I say, that's something you would never say because you're too nice a guy. <laughs> I'd come close to saying it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we take that personal rating. You'd like to know, does that predict anything? I guess economists were always about the numbers, and so maybe that's why they would say that's not the point. But it ought to matter for something. Um, Otherwise, why are you doing it? Okay, well, suppose, again, I should explain. Uh, Peter in the Harvard Affirmative Action case, and he's up against uh, the other side, and the other side say, we're not discriminating against the Asians. And they say, see, they just score. We have a holistic assessment of the applicant. It's not just their academics. It's also their personality and their athletics, athletic skills. Uh, the Asians lag behind on personality, but it's a subjective measure what the personality actually is. So the question is, what's the validity of the measure? How would you know? Well, presumably, you'd want to track these students over time. You want to see how it correlates with their grades. You want to see also what it means for their later life success and whatnot. And to the extent that the personality measure as assessed by Harvard's admissions process correlated with other objective outcomes that we would value, you might give them a little bit more uh, leeway to to make use of it. Uh, To the extent that it didn't, you would see it for what it might actually be, which is a screen for it being able to discriminate against the Asians. what and you, in favor of legacies, you know, and <laughs> you know, you could use these ratings to put in whatever preferences that that uh, that you like. I mean, to me, one of the amazing things was how well white legacies did on the athletic rating. They did better than any other group. Um, and you take it into account the selectivity. Maybe they only apply because the legacies value athletics. You know, families, I played uh, lacrosse, I I rode crew, you know, I was on the sailing team back in my day, back in the 80s, you know, so now my son is, I want him to, you know, and I'm a legacy and my kid is, and and they they start at the age of 10 in the prep school, you know, they start into these very specialized sports. So it's a kind of 
you know. It's a huge advantage. You know, there is no way I could ever make the soccer team. My kids played on the soccer team because they go to a small private school. That was not going to happen uh, for me going to a public school. But they don't cut anybody at, uh, <laughs> at the private school my kids go to. Now, you mentioned that universities are um, not all that open with giving out data. Uh, recently, a study has appeared, it was uh, reported in the New York Times, uh, out of uh, UC Berkeley, a graduate student out there named Beamer. I think he might be working with uh, CARD uh, on, on affirmative action. He had access to voluminous data on matriculants at the University of California's uh, higher education system. I mean, really, really fine data that I understand people like you have been trying to get your hands on for years without success. Comment. Well, Rick Sander, you know, he's a full professor at Yale's law school, has a lawsuit uh, well before this paper came out. To, oh, to Sander's at Yale. He used to be at UCLA. No, no, he's at, yeah, he's at UCLA. Yeah. Okay. Um, but he has a lawsuit to try to get access to that data. Um, he's a professor in the University of California system at the law school, and he cannot get his hands on California data about the uh, effects of affirmative action on students in that state. How is that? But other people who are also at the University of California can get their hands on the data? How how can that be? Well, very few people can get their hands on it. To me, it was amazing that Bleemer was able to get his hands on it. What's the name of the graduate student at uh, UC Berkeley? whose study was reported on in the New York Times, and we can talk more about what he finds, but he basically argues that uh, banning affirmative action with Cal- uh, California ballot proposition 209 ended up adversely affecting African-American students across a broad range of measures, and he takes his findings to be disproving the so-called mismatch hypothesis because affirmative action actually was helping, on his argument, black students before it was eliminated in California in 1996. So that's what he finds, but he's got access to these data and a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't. And uh, this is right before California is going to vote on whether to keep racial, uh, to to keep the current system, um, which does not allow racial preferences in the UC system. They're voting to, to, there's a proposition designed to allow racial preferences back, back in. I understand. But what's, uh, you know, there's so much that could have been done in between when that initial proposition, Prop 209, was passed, and now to actually figure out what works, how everything was going. And this is the first sort of paper where somebody's really been given access to that data. Um, it's it's too bad because there could have been so much more information um, about how to improve the system. Okay, there's a political environment here. I can remember the campaign against affirmative action that led to the passing of ballot Proposition 209 in California in 1996. I remember it vividly. I was, you know, on the scene as an uh, economist, a younger economist, uh, looking at these issues. Uh, There was a guy called Ward Connerly. Ward Connerly, a black man, a businessman who made it his life's work 
to uh, get rid of affirmative action and who was the major proponent. There was a lot of conservative money that went into the advertising campaign to persuade voters. And ultimately, uh, Connolly and his colleagues succeeded and they got affirmative action banned. This was 24 years ago. Uh, now there is a movement to unban the ban. I mean, to rescind it, to open it up. And so that uh, the, I believe it was an amendment by uh, uh, plebiscite to the constitution of the state. And now this would in effect uh, repeal that amendment and affirmative action would be permitted again. And it's in that context uh, that the young economist Beamer's study uh, arguing that affirmative action hurt the elimination of affirmative action hurt black students in terms of their later life success. It's in that context that it appears. And it's also in that context that uh, Rick Sander, the law professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, who is a big proponent of the mismatch theory and a big critic of affirmative action, has sued the UC system or the state to release data that he wants to be able to examine, presumably on behalf of his position, uh, which would be to sustain the ban on affirmative action in the state of California. Well, he actually had that lawsuit well before the Bleemer paper. So he's been asking for that data. Uh, I see, for a long time. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know if he would say he would be using it so much to um, further bans on racial preferences. I think he would say that he wants it so he can look at uh, the research. But that's not going to be the perception by a lot of people that uh, they're going to perceive it that he has, um, he's interested in uh, showing the mismatch hypothesis. Well, but I mean, I don't find it implausible to think that to project that he would want to argue for the ban. I mean, this is not something new. This has been going on for, yeah. for a quarter century. He's, he, he was vilified. I remember that uh, law review article in the Stanford Law Review that he published based on the Law School Admissions Council data where uh, he, uh, I thought, rather convincingly showed at that time, it was the early 1990s. This is a long time ago now. The data was from the early 1990s. The comprehensive data on law school applications of uh, students that go through the law school uh, admissions council portal. And um, he was showing that uh, there were huge differences in the performance of kids after admission to elite law schools, that there was a huge disparity in the academic preparation uh, and uh, test score performance. Uh, by race of these students, and that there was a pretty strong correlation between the entry-level characteristics and the performance of students, and moreover, that the effects on post-education career success, like passing the bar examination, uh, were measurable and and were uh, in the same direction. So uh, he's been at this for a long time. I mean, so he's dug in. There's no offense to him, no offense whatsoever. You're going to get dug in when you, you know, and moreover, he's been vilified. He's been, you know, like Scalia in that cartoon. He's been made into a pariah because he's supposed to be a racist uh, because he's raised these questions about affirmative action. So I have no doubt where he's where he would be coming from. And I, I say that without any without any disrespect. I mean, I, you know, uh, he's an advocate. He's also a scholar. Yeah. And. and um Certainly, I don't want to be seen as an advocate. I want to be seen as a scholar. And if the results come out one way, I want to say that's how the results come out. Um, 
And I think on something like the mismatch issue, mismatch issue, there are places where mismatch is relevant and places where it's not relevant. Uh, and it, it always, again, depends on how much. So even on Sanders' findings, I don't necessarily see that as meaning uh, we should just get rid of affirmative action. But if, if we're interested in um, the, the pass rate for blacks on the bar, maybe a little less might be helpful. You know, that would be you know, how, I would, how I would take the findings. Um, yeah, I, I think a little bit of affirmative action almost has to be helpful from that perspective. Now, there are other reasons why you could be against affirmative action, yeah. but not from the mismatch hypothesis uh, perspective. Well, that's an interesting uh, statement right there. Mismatch is a f- is a phenomenon, but its its effects are localized, and it depends upon the degree of affirmative action. And an, a mismatch argument is an argument about calibration, not an argument about uh, whether to uh, abolish or to sustain. Calibrate it so that you don't have these ill effects, rather than get rid of it altogether uh, because you know it's bad. But here, so we're talking like economists, and everything's on the margin, and everything is. Yeah quantitative and whatnot, there are people who are going to say, well, but racial discrimination is wrong. I mean, at the end of your uh, last appearance on The Glenn Show, people, I urge you, if you haven't seen it, to go back and watch part one of this conversation. Uh, Peter told a story, and the story was about an Asian applicant who had had a tough life and overcome a lot of obstacles to Harvard uh, and whose uh, personal essay gave voice to these uh, obstacles, and it was very poignant. And uh, the admissions officer, in effect, had evaluated this applicant's uh, application as standard strong, meaning another Asian kid with high test scores, but nothing to get excited about. And your point was it was anything but standard strong. It was anything but. It was very unstandard. It was something that you, if you look past somebody being an Asian or white or a black and you looked at the life person of the person, you would be moved by. Now, for somebody uh, like uh, uh, Bloom, to come along and say, it's just wrong that that kid didn't get a chance to go to Harvard because they were Asian. It's just, it's just plain out wrong. I don't care what the numbers are. It's just wrong. They're not interested in costs at the margin. They're, they're making an, an all or nothing argument about, about what is the right way for us to conduct ourselves in society. Are you willing to take a position in that, in that argument? Uh, not a strong one. <laughs> That's for sure. You know, I think that, um, I, I can certainly see the arguments. I think one argument in favor of affirmative action is that we need to do things that build trust um, for a group that has had reasons not to trust the U.S. Um, at the same time, I'm well, also sympathetic. is what you're saying. That's right. That's okay. right. I mean, the history is very bad. Um, you know, I think I mentioned, you know, my favorite, my favorite book is The Hiding Place. And The Hiding Place is about um, these sisters who get thrown into a concentration camp for helping the Jews. And uh, it's a remarkable book because um, one of them does not survive, and, uh, but she's a saint. She, she feels bad for the Nazi guards. She actually prays for Nazi guards. She loves them anyway. I bring that all up more to say that at the, at the end of the book, after um, the author gets out of the concentration camp, 
she runs into one of these um, Nazi guards who says, oh, isn't it great that Jesus forgives? <laughs> and she you know, asks for the grace to forgive him. He's like, okay, we're ready to move on. And I think that that, um, I, I think that for a lot of people, they, they might have the view of we're ready to move on. Um, but the history is such that uh, there's been a broken trust. And so we do need to figure out ways to repair that trust. I'm not sure that affirmative action is the right way to do that. I think, you know, we need to be doing things to invest in, in, um, in communities. Uh, we've got to change the relationship between the police uh, and these communities so that, that trust is rebuilt. Um, if affirmative action, you know, at the margin helps with that, great. But I don't, you know, it's clearly not a panacea, um, particularly when you get to, to uh, the mismatch, the case of mismatch, when you go too far. Okay, so the people who oppose affirmative action in principle, they have their argument, but you're not going to join them there you you think that a certain amount of nuance and sort of openness to compromise is necessary if we're going to build the kind of society that we want, given our history. Am I putting words in your mouth or am I getting this right? I, I don't want to. Well, I'm, I'm saying I think it's just so complicated that, uh, I mean, I also see the argument that if we're going to move to a society where race is not what defines you in that way, um, affirmative action is making race more salient. I mean, this is fundamentally where we want to acknowledge the, the mistrust and everything that's happened in the past without it being something that's constantly uh, hanging over over your head. Uh, I mean, I remember my, my son coming back from school one day and he was just pissed off because they had done a big thing on diversity. And he was my kid who had, you know, more black friends than any of my other, other kids. And he was getting along fine with them. But now it's like you're focusing in on what makes us different as opposed to, you know, the common, the common humanity. I don't see race. I'm colorblind. And the, the current, uh, uh, thinking is very much against that sentiment it it's it says in effect i can't quote chapter and verse from uh ibram kendi how other be an anti-racist or from um who's the woman uh, d'angelo robin d'angelo yeah. with the white fragility but roughly the way it goes is that is a luxury that only white people can afford right the idea that i don't see race that's a dodge that's a dodge it's an effort to avoid the question. Uh, race is so deeply etched into the structures that we inhabit, into our thinking, our subconscious, even, you know, uh, 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 what they call an implicit bias. Uh, race, race is so historically salient, wealth disparity, uh, the poverty rate differences, segregation, redlining. It's so institutionally etched in Southern strategy, mass incarceration, et cetera, uh, that this talk about I don't see race, I can't get beyond it, 
I mean, I just want to get beyond it. You know, I, we, we should be able to get beyond it um, is, is something, it's an indulgence. It's, it's only, it's a luxury that only the people who have racial privilege already can afford. Okay? It avoids the hard work. How did uh, Kamala Harris put it recently? She says, we have, let's do the work. Uh, and this is the Democratic uh, candidate for vice president on the ticket with Biden. Uh, in a statement that she made recently, uh, maybe it was during the convention. I think it was during the Democratic National Convention. She said that we, you know, I was struck by it. Let's do the work, okay? Yeah. And you can't do the work if you're blind. You got to be able to look at it. This is this kind of idea. Now, I personally think that that's dead wrong. I, I'm old-fashioned. I think even if Martin Luther King was much more sophisticated than some kind of cartoon, I had a dream speech. I might told you know, he was much more subtle. He was a socialist. He was a pacifist. He, I mean, practically, you know, he had, there was a lot of moral authority going on with King that was not simply captured in that in that speech. Still, I think he had the right idea. The right, you know, the goal should be transcendence of race. Race is superficial. It's not deep. It's not important. We should be marrying each other in due course, in due course, living together uh, across these lines. We should, black and white should be as important as uh, Irish and Italian is now. It was very important in, in 1900, Irish and Italian. In 1920, Irish and Italian was very important. In 2020, Irish and Italian is a matter of not that deep. It's not. It's not all the way, all the way, all the way down. I don't know about Greek. Are you? Greek? <laughs> well, I'm actually Italian. And but even you, you see what I mean? People are. Oh, totally. yeah. I think that's what we should be going for. And I think we should be trying to get away from thinking about race as the first order of business. I'm even given to saying that when a cop shoots a kid, the first words off of our lips are not to be white cop shoots black kid. Cops are cops. They need to act right, not wrong, whatever their color. Kids are kids. They don't need to get shot, whatever their color. There's a tragedy when a cop shoots a kid. Full stop. You want to make a racial matter out of it? Well, then what happens to the white, when the white supremacist wants to make a racial uh, uh, matter out of criminal rapes woman? Criminal was black, woman was white. That happens sometimes in the United States of America. I never want to pick up my newspaper and read black criminal rapes white woman. That's the worst thing in the world. So to me, those are two sides of the same coin. Um, Yeah, and and I think that uh, quality depends at some deep, deep level upon uh, affirming colorblindness is the right moral standard. I, I, I really do, but I can't prove it. It's just my instinct. Thanks for indulging me. I know that was a long speech. Well, it's interesting you brought up the Irish and Italians because my uh, grandfather committed the cardinal sin. He was Italian. He eloped with an Irish woman. There's a debate about whether she was 14 or 15 at the time. but <laughs> uh, <laughs> That was a, really bad at that time to, to go go off marrying an Irish woman. Um, but to what you said, that doesn't mean we can, we can shoot that colorblind ideal, but that doesn't mean we don't do anything. So you know, there, another part of the Harvard case was race-neutral alternatives. Okay. And so we're, we're, we're trying to figure out ways of um, acknowledging the history, but do it in a way where we're not going to be making race as salient. Um, 
in, in the interaction. Now, I have to say here, because, you know, I have a previous life, and in my previous life, I was a very pro-affirmative action. I worked with William Bowen at the Mellon Foundation on some initiatives. I had a little research center at Boston University where I advocated certain things. And one of the things we did, we put in a brief in the uh, Gratz and Grutter uh, cases, uh, uh, University of Michigan cases, saying that uh, colorblind affirmative action was certainly feasible, but it was very inefficient relative to targeted affirmative action because targeted affirmative action, well, you know, you, you, you take the best of the kids in the group that you're trying to advance and, and you, and uh, you uh, emit, omit the least performing of the kids in the group that you were not trying to advance. So if I'm not getting enough black kids, I want more black kids. If I can do color blind, a color sighted affirmative action, if I can actually discriminate by race, I can get the best of the black kids that I otherwise would not have admitted, and I can leave out the least uh, promising of the white kids that I would have otherwise admitted. But if you force me to be colorblind by doing and something yeah. universally, I'm, I'm not going to be able to realize those efficiencies. And if your goal is sufficiently ambitious and you're colorblind, it's very, very inefficient relative to the target affirmative action. So I have to say that, otherwise... Somebody else is going to look me up and say, you forgot what you are. <laughs> what, do you say? what do you say to that about the efficiency? Well, I, think, I think you're right. It is, it is inefficient uh, from that perspective. And then you end up with, you know, what are the trade-offs? Um, and, and that's where I, I, I think it just gets really hard. I think there are arguments for the affirmative action based on race, like we were talking about, uh, that that may take us away from the colorblind, which is our ideal. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. Um, well, I have soured on affirmative action as a long run remedy. I mean, I, I worry that we're now, uh, this is Glenn Lowry, the latter. This is my most recent, uh, in, uh, incarnation. I think it's probably my last one. Uh, we're so far down the line. I mean, we've been arguing about this since 1970. For a half century, I remember Nathan Glazier's book, Affirmative Discrimination, which was very controversial, and I believe it's published in like 1978 or something like that, Uh, around the same time as the Bakke case. When is the uh, Bakke case, Alan Bakke, University of California, Davis Medical School? I think that is the late 1970s. Yeah. What does it mean to live in a world in which affirmative action is routinized and made permanent as an institutional practice. To my mind, it means two things. One of them is that Black people can never have real, full, solid equality because we've been now typed permanently as a group that requires special treatment in order to be able to find uh, inclusion in selective venues. And I think that's not equality. So that's that's one point. Any affirmative action vision over a dynamic period that does not entail it eventually going away cannot produce a steady state of equal standing and dignity between the racial groups. That's an, I assert that as a theorem, in effect, because what you're doing is you're basically conceding the, the uh, uh, a condition of uh, African-American underperformance. Uh, you can do that for a period of time, given history, but you can't do it forever and expect to get equality. That's my, that's my proposition. But the other thing that I worry about, 
is devaluation of standards because uh, if you make permanent using different criteria of admission, and if the criteria of admission correlate with post-admission performance, then you've made permanent a racial disparity in post-admissions performance. But if that's intolerable, the tendency will be to flatten and uh, uh, minimize the uh, differentiations that you're using. For example, the tendency will be to get rid of standardized tests and admissions. Oh, yeah. The tendency will be to inflate grades or not do honors or not have other kinds of things if they're going to reflect in uh, racial disparity. Something like that. So I'm, I'm, I don't like the vision for society which relies on affirmative action as a permanent institutionalized practice. I've, I think it's inconsistent with racial equality. Yeah, and I think um, even if they did some of the things they suggested on the transparency front, it may actually push them to then change how they're doing their standards so that uh, in, in a way that we might not not like um, you want to flesh that idea out? I mean, be a little bit more concrete. What are you saying? Well, if, if you had to tell students, look, given your characteristics, you have no chance of graduating in engineering in four years. Then maybe you change what you're doing in engineering so that that's not the case. Maybe we water down the curriculum so that knowing differential equations or whatever is no longer as critical to being able to get an engineering degree since that's the site where the racial difference would express itself most, uh, most strongly, the mathematical exactly. uh, yeah. preparation. Yeah. But, but I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it really does come down to this transparency issue, you know, and you start on firm of action in part because universities have done nothing to, uh, really look at what helps people succeed at their, at their schools. And, you know, that to me, they have a moral mandate to do so. I, I'd just like to lay that out there. Any school that wants me to look at their data and help them figure out what would lead to better persistence in STEM fields, I'll sign the confidentiality agreement, I, you know, so I won't be – Tell them how bad you were doing there. I will do it for free because I want to see the people persist uh, in the sciences. And I think you could fix this quite easily. You could easily identify, look, if you're coming to this school without calculus and you said you want to do engineering, uh, chances are it's not going to work out. Well, let's set something up so that we fix that the summer before you get here. That doesn't have to be race-based. It could be, you know, anyone who's not coming in uh, without, cal- without calculus before they get here. Universities have scholars. They have the best people to work on, on that issue of figuring out what would, what would lead to success. And there's no interest, you know. Let me show another graphic here, I, uh, which I'd like to get you to uh, react to. Um, this is uh, showing the uh, National Associate, uh, National Assessment of Educational Progress test scores. It's a little bit dated, 2005. These are 12th grade students, uh, and this is mathematic achievement level. Dark blue means below basic, 
okay? Yeah. White means advanced, broken down by race. These are high school students. It's a random sample of American high school students in 2005 mathematics proficiency. 70% of African-Americans below basic on this national uh, apt- uh, assessment of uh, educational progress and essentially an insignificant number who are at advanced uh, uh, the test performance on this national exam. And you can see what you can see there uh, for whites, for Asians, for Hispanics, and so on. And the question that I want to ask is, how could you ever expect in demanding technical fields like law and medicine, like engineering, like the sciences, or like economics for that matter, that you have anything close to a proportionate representation by race of students. Now, maybe you can get it at one university because they can uh, recruit and hoard the students, but across the uh, spectrum of university, anything close to proportionate representation. If you don't do something about the basic preparation of students uh, who are feeding into this population. So doesn't this all kind of roll back to, to K through 12 and, you know, and so that would actually be one of my primary beefs with affirmative action would be that it's a Band-Aid that's covering up a festering wound, which is the massive inequality that's happened before they get to college. That way we can have our, our college campus look like the Benetton catalog, you know, but at the end of the day, we haven't addressed the real issues that are happening um, earlier on. And there is stuff that you could do. You know, the no excuses charters seem to be very successful. There's stuff you could do to really change um, change these these gaps. Have you seen this paper of Roland Fryers? I think it's in the Journal of Political Economy on his experiments in Houston, implementing in uh, public schools a no excuses charter type format, curriculum, tutoring, uh, longer school day, longer school year very selective on the teachers and uh, so forth, high expectations. And he shows like a half standard deviation move in the, you know, he's got random assignment of kids to treatment and control schools, schools. And he shows like a half standard deviation move in the black kids uh, uh, test scores over a two year period uh, from uh, the, for the treatment group relative to the control group, just by changing the way that the school is organized and run. This is not definitive, but it's certainly that that interventions well-designed in the character of public education can make a big difference in the educational outcomes. And and where do you ever see half-standard deviation changes? (laughs) I mean, that is is huge. Um, Uh, Just to put it in perspective, the mean difference in test scores on uh, cognitive ability like tests are typically between black and white, typically going to a matter of 1.0 standard deviation. So this is closing half the racial gap in a two-year period by changing the school. Don't want to go too far. This is just one piece of data, one, but it's it's very suggestive of the potentiality there. Yeah. All right, Peter. Uh, you got something else you want to say about affirmative action or about life? Because I want to bring us to, to a close relatively soon. Yeah. So um, I just want to make one comment about the nuance associated with, with affirmative action, because I actually think that the Bleemer paper does show mismatch. Um, and you can see it a bit 
uh, you know, he doesn't find any earnings effects for black black students. So basically, you get rid of affirmative action, affirmative action, and the black earnings didn't change. Hispanic earnings went down. Why is that relevant? Well, affirmative action, at least at the schools I've seen, is typically about twice as aggressive for Hispanic students as it is for black students. So it's a little bit like a laugher curve. You know, if you go too far, then you start, you stop seeing the, the benefits. If you'd had affirmative action for blacks at the level that it was for Hispanics, then when you get rid of affirmative action, you would have seen black earnings fall. But they stayed the same. So it effectively, affirmative action is just leading to a wash for black students. That to me actually illustrates mismatch. If you'd done slightly less aggressive affirmative action, you would have seen black students having higher earnings as a result of uh, the racial preferences. And what's the mechanism through which uh, affirmative action is having an effect on on the wages uh, of the sort that you just described? Well, I I think that there's a few channels. Part of it is uh, affecting whether you graduate, whether you graduate in STEM, um, even whether in this case, whether you're working in California, because he only has the wage data if you're in in California, in um, college quality. So you know you're going to get a kick for for graduating from Berkeley, um, conditional on graduating and conditional on your major. Okay, less aggressive affirmative action would have led to the. Uh, elimination of affirmative action causing a drop in wages, but in fact it didn't, and that suggests that affirmative action is too is has gone past the the point at which it would be optimal from an earnings perspective. Yes, uh, and this gets back to the point where a little bit has to be helpful. It's just a question of when we when it gets to be super super large. I mean, in the Harvard case. My model was showing that by marking black on your application, you quadrupled your your chances of being admitted on average. Uh, David Card on the other side showed that it tripled it. You know, those those differences. That's not where the argument is, <laughs> right? Oh, well, it's okay to do three and a half, but not four. You know, that's not. We're both showing. Uh, substantial effects. Where's the right answer? I, I don't know, but we at least have to know, you know, how much and then study to see, you know, try to figure out what the optimal amount would be, conditional on having the policies in the first place. Yeah, something tells me the political debate won't withstand that kind of fine degree of calibration. And if uh, Brown or uh, Yale or anybody were to announce, we're going to admit fewer African-American students next year than we did this year. But the reason why is, and then they were to give the explanation that you just gave, uh, the effects on the margin will on net be beneficial to the students whom we do admit. Um, that wouldn't just not fly. People, people would say that that's an excuse for turning back the clock. So it may be that we're stuck on a glide path here that, uh, that makes the kind of insight that you bring to the conversation Unfortunately, uh, not all that relevant. 
That's right. Though I think hopefully at some point they will at least look at the data because even if you had the same affirmative action program, you ought to be looking at what leads the students to succeed. And I think pressure should be put on universities. I mean, it it drives me nuts to see after the Floyd case, you get these three-page emails from university administrators talking about systematic racism without ever anywhere in those emails saying, we need to look at the factors that lead students to succeed here. We've got the data. We've got amazing data. All you have to do is put it to use to try to, to, to see what, uh, what would fix the problem. And you might not be able to fix it all the way because of the, the vast differences um, in what happens before college. But you can sure do a lot better than not even looking at the data. That's what I would love to come out, come out of this is that universities, instead of, I mean, back when the protest happened over my paper, what, what was the conclusion of that? Well, the Black Student Association got some more money for some more diversity events. That didn't solve the problem. And the university never, um, you know, it was the same thing about with Amy Wax. They never said I was wrong. They said, oh, maybe the data's dated, but they didn't show what the recent. Just to remind people, he was finding that black students were dropping out of STEM majors at a vastly higher rate than white students were. But that was because they were being admitted with lower scores in the uh, on the test uh, that showed their aptitude for quantitative work. Yeah. You got and you got into trouble for that. But uh, people don't want to answer to that. Was this- data. Pardon? And the answer to that, the reason I got in trouble is they're saying I'm saying black students are inferior. And I, you know, I went on a radio show uh, where the first person had actually written uh, a whole article on this about how problems with, with, with uh, what I had said. And, you know, she went first and as she's talking, my blood's boiling. But really by grace, I said, if that's what the, I thought the paper was saying, I'd be upset too. Because fundamentally, we're on the same page. We want black students to succeed at whatever university they're at. But if I show you that, that, that that's not happening, we need to fix this. I'm not saying, you know, they can't succeed. I'm saying that they're not succeeding. And so we need to do something to change, to change that. And that necessitates, at least from a professor's perspective, looking at the data. Yeah. Well, okay, we covered this ground, and I think we covered it very well. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Peter. Thank you, Glad. Appreciate it. I'm really very excited that we should tell people about the Journal of Economic Literature, the paper with Lovenheim. Uh, it's called uh, The Quality Fit Trade-Off. Uh, and it is a comprehensive assessment of the empirical literature on the questions that we have been talking about here in terms of how affirmative action plays out and matching kids to colleges and promoting their success or not doing so. Uh, so people who are interested can find it without any difficulty. Journal of Economic Literature, Peter R.C. Diacano. Uh, thanks for coming on The Glenn Show, Peter. Thanks for having me, Glenn. You're welcome.